can open your copy of God's Word to Exodus 20, uh, but we are going to be all over the Scriptures today, and one thing that would be of benefit is the, the handout that's available uh, at the podiums by the doors. It's going to have a lot of the cross-references and more. Um, that you can verify, double-check my work uh, as you go home, but go further, go deeper and richer uh, into some of these realities, these applications. How do, we, how do we bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament? And especially in this area, we've been in Exodus chapter 20 for a couple of weeks uh, previous to uh, the King's Brass of last Lord's Day. And we're, we're coming to the how do I love my neighbor section. Um, but as we, as we do that, uh, I'd like to pray uh, for us once again. Indeed, Father, we thank you for this, your word. And I pray indeed, as we've sung in that prayer, uh, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would move us and guide us and direct us into all truth. And that Christ would be honored and glorified. We would see him in all of his fullness and all of his accomplishment for us. Amen. Well, these, these words, ten words, is how the, the original language of the Bible says it. They're, they're, we use the word commandments, but the Scripture replete, repletely says words. These are the ten words. The ten words. And they're directly words that are spoken by God himself on Mount Sinai, revealed to Moses, who then would convey them to God's people. They're written in about 1446 B.C. And we're wondering how in the world can a law code from around 1400 B.C. be applicable to 2023 in the year of our Lord today? And this is part of our exploration. Now, we tend to think of Jesus teaching um, two great commandments. Love the Lord your God. I'll do it this way for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, as summation. And we tend to think of the, the two tables of the law, love God, love neighbor. But let's just kind of look at the structure here. It, it involves all of our life, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And th these commands actually begin with our thoughts. This is how we're supposed to think about God. He is to be the forefront of our mind. He is to be first place in our mind and in our heart. We are to think of him and no other before him. And then number 10, command number 10, will come back around and say, this is how you ought not to think. The first one is, think of God alone. I'm the God who redeemed you. And then, and then it rounds out, don't think about other things. And then it talks about our words, how we're still supposed to revere the name of the Lord. And then we'll get to truth-telling in word number nine. And sandwiched between these, four, five, six, seven, and eight, are the normal things we consider the do's and the don'ts. But we also consider that most of these, other than two, most of these are in the negative form. Don't do this. And in our Western thinking and uh, livelihood, we tend to think of those, oh, they're so negative. But, but when we consider no as actually more liberating than yes, the negative is actually more freedom than the positive. If you can um, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, for example. There is nothing else. You can do nothing else but that positive word of command. But uh, negatively, don't kill. Well, there's a lot of other things within the realm of freedom uh, in the aspects of life that are availed to us other than don't kill. I mean, it's quite small and limited, actually. Just things for us to ponder and consider. But we come now to these sections that are more about the, the deeds, uh, number four and five in particular. We spent extra time on Sabbath, on rest, and the sanctity of time. And our response to that is to live a life of rest in the Lord. Now we come to five, where our reading began. And it's honor father and mother, verse 12. Honor father and mother, uh, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is the sanctity of the family, and we are to have relationships that are reverential. They're to be those of respect. And I think, again, good to highlight this reality that mother is listed. And, and interestingly, in number four, word number four, just previous to this, wife is not listed as part of the household, as part of the possession, as part of the people uh, as servants and so forth that need to be rested. No, she is on par and equal with husband, with father, as administrating the household and allowing everyone else in the household to have rest. That's significant. Significant as co-heirs in this covenant of God. And, and then, interestingly, uh, she's listed here to be revered, to be honored. Now, what's also interesting is that this is obviously directed toward kids, children. Two applications of this. One is you never stop being a child of your parents. You might go past being a kid, but you will still be their child their seed, their offspring. And this is a, a word that is for perpetuity. There is no ending of this need to honor father and mother. You, yes, hatch, latch, and dispatch. We, we birth them. They get married and cling unto their own spouse. And then they go like arrows shot forth into mission of the world mission of God in the world. Hatch, latch, dispatch. But this never undoes the need or God's desire that we honor father and mother. We're never too old to honor father and mother. Now, remember, we are to leave father and mother and cling unto our wife, guys. But the two are not opposed to one another. We need the, the diligent wisdom to figure out how we do that with our wife. Now, the other application of this is that, as I agree with the comment in our, our fellowship, our panel discussion this morning, the, the young, younger ones, uh, elementary age and below, they are indeed the future of the church. 
And we understand that in the sense that uh, membership is for believers who, who make a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, at the same time, this command, and the, as it's repeated in Ephesians 5, Paul repeats this, honor father and mother that you might live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. It, it's assuming the kids are here. They, they are part of this fellowship in a regard. And we need to make space for them. Space not only, you know, now they can actually lay down on the seat and their head on their mother's lap. Praise the Lord for that opportunity. They can snuggle close, not get their fingers pinched. We need to make room for the little ones among us. We need to also make room audibly for noises and movements of little ones among us. This is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. I know you, when, when all those little ones come to your home for holidays and visits, it's, it's loud, it's noisy, uh, they take a lot of energy, but you love it. And we should love it here as well. In fact, this is a holiday. Every Lord's Day is a high feast day. It's festive. This is the family gathering, and we're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll do especially today as we come to the Lord's table in just a bit. Honor your father and your mother. Well, we, we, I, I just can't allow myself to camp on all of these as long as I already have. The New Testament and Christ. That's where I really want to get with each of these words. Again, any one of these could be expounded, and we've done a series on the ten words uh, some years ago. The New Testament ethic, we alluded to this already, Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. And Paul says this is the first commandment with a promise that you, it would go well with you and that you would live long in the land that the Lord your God has given. Now for Israel, it's very dynamic because they didn't obey father and mother and this is one of the reasons why they were kicked out of the land and put in exile. Pretty real. This is an ethic for today. The new covenant as well as the old. Now, here's a further application of the reality for those of us that are more on the adult level uh, of this application. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here's how we live together as the family of God with reverence. Do not rebuke an older man, 1 Timothy 5.1 says, but encourage him as you would a father and younger men as brothers older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. And it goes on to say, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and so make a return to their parents. This is pleasing in the sight of God. This is, this is part of the qualifications for leadership within the church is caring for your fathers and your mothers. Returning unto them as, as they have raised you and so now you have an opportunity to, to care for them. And I do see and hear of marvelous illustrations, manifestations of this among our body. As you have 
been caring for, and in some cases now receiving uh, special care from your children. I tease with mine. We have, we have five children, and we get two months with each of them when we retire. <laughs> the other two, we got to figure out, um, maybe we'll cruise for two, two months. I don't know. I doubt that actually I'm going to be able to retire, but that's the re- but the, we make fun, but the reality is in an agrarian society and a culture, your, your future, your retirement plan was your family. There, there was no state to take care of things. Honor father and mother. I, again, I'm, I could, I'm so sorry. How is Christ the fulfillment of all this? John 19 for an example. John 19, verse 26, Jesus saw his mother as he's hanging upon the cross in agony and death. In John 19, 26, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, probably John, and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, Jesus is looking out for his mother and making sure that she is cared for. And you're thinking, what, didn't Jesus have other brothers and sisters? Yes. But Jesus commends her and her spirit to the believer, not the unbeliever. Jesus wants his mom to be cared for in a Christian home by a Christian son, even though he be adopted as such. Something to ponder, something to consider, not only for inheritance sake, but how we're raising and discipling. The next word, verse 13, no murder, or no, yeah, no, no murder. It, the word is killing, but it's a unique word, a distinct word. Um, it, it, it is, it's not ever used to the killing of beasts. It's typically not of accidents or executions or even in just war. It seems to be that of manslaughter, that of, that of murder. Man is created in the image of God, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And life is valuable, not intrinsically, but because it's a gift from God. Your value and the value of life is because God created, gave, formed, preserves, and protects life. And when anyone takes life, they are taking a presumption upon a prerogative that only God has as the creator. And you say, well, what about capital punishment? And what about war? And yes, well, Romans 13 describes for us a delegated divine responsibility to to the state authorities for capital punishment and for just war. Not all war is just. It creates great dilemma for the citizen and for the soldier. But, But this is particularly about murder. Now, the New Testament ethic gets very fine-tuned. It doesn't go beyond or further than what this command already is about. Jesus is simply unpacking what it meant 
already. And in his teaching, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Your mouth and your mind bringing insult to the character, to the person of someone made in the image of God is murder. It is slaying someone in your heart and in your mind created in the image of God. When you get angry at your spouse and things come spewing out, be careful. We know that brothers and sisters are, are liable to bring words to one another, and that's, that's how it's word here. If you're angry with your brother and you give insults, derogatory comments, when you're cut off in traffic and expletives will come out, you are guilty of sin. Grievous sin. This is the New Testament ethic. Not simply the old. Now, how is Christ the fulfillment of this? He didn't kill anybody, no, but he himself was killed unjustly. But think of this as well. John chapter 1, the, the opening to that gospel. All things were made through him. And without him was nothing made that has been made. In him was life. And the light was the light of men. In him was life. Jesus is life. He's the giver of life, the sustainer of life. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Colossians 1 will unpack this for us as well. The supremacy of Christ over all creation as the creator. In him is life. And when you demean life by word or by deed, we sin. The next word, verse 14, no adultery. The sanctity of human sexuality. Number six, the no murdering, protects that sanctity of life itself, the human image of God. And now number seven protects the, the steward of that life. Those lives come from a union of man and woman created in that image of God. And they are the guardians of such life. We're made in the image of God, male and female. Our sexuality, though God have no body, though God himself not be male or female, our sexuality, male and female, reveals something of the character and the nature of God, the, the diversity within a unity of all people. The Christian marriage celebrates diversity, real diversity, male and female together. Unbelievable. Together. And from that union of diversity comes a third Another flesh, a child in the norm of things. Yes, our sexuality is a manifestation of the nature of God. Again, he not being male or female, having no body as we do, but 
God has made marriage and has made man and woman in his image, together as his image, a living, breathing illustration, a testimony of the God of creation and the God of redemption. And our sexuality, yes, is for propagation. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. It is, it is for purity. We're not just going around, sleeping around. One man, one woman, till death do us part. It is for propagation, it is for purity, and it is for pleasure. And you can read the Song of Solomon as a handbook for that. Awkward silence. <laughs> the New Testament ethic, and if you have the handout, you notice many cross-references to this one. And in any of these categories, they really are uh, examples not exhaustive. But again, Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that any man who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Similar to the anger, the words that come out of your mouth that reveal what's in your mind and in your heart and in your thoughts. And so in your mind, you are committing sin. When you linger and lust. And not only in our heart, but in our mouth. Ephesians 5 and verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among holy ones. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk or crude joking. They're out of place, but only let there be thanksgiving. Be careful of your humor, the jokes. Very easy to fall into sin. And I would suggest that you even be careful with, well, be careful. How is Christ the fulfillment of this? Ephesians 5, and we've alluded to the concept already. Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Your marital relationship and your sexual purity, married or single, your sexual purity is a manifestation of the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. Whether we're single or married or past married, we are all the bride of Christ. And we are all to be prepared as his bride when he returns in all purity. Now, Ephesians 5 admits that we're not there. Ephesians 5 admits that the bride is wrinkled and blemished and soiled and that Jesus, through the ministry of the Word, is purifying her and cleansing her and washing her. So we look around and we recognize, boy, boy, Todd, you're wrinkled. Boy, Todd, you got a spot. Yep. 
Jesus is still washing me. And I'm part of the bride of Christ and I can hardly wait for him to come get me and take me home. He is the fulfillment. No stealing, verse 15. The sanctity of, well, we could say property, but livelihood, sustenance. This is about daily bread. We see this usually, we think of it in our Western uh, affluent society as protecting those of us who have stuff from people who don't have it and want it. But, but in our context, it's about protecting the poor from the rich. The oppressor. The word is ganav. It's theft, to take by stealth or to carry away secretly. It refers to any transaction that must be kept hidden from the owner of whatever is being taken. Whether they're stealing a piece of food off of your plate, or they're stealing money from your bank account, or they're using interest at exorbitant rates, all of these things might be theft. The law will unpack this in things like fraud, the use of weights and measures, like you're buying a pound of meat and do you, do you believe the meat cutter's scale. Landmarks, moving boundaries, real estate, shenanigans, usury, we use the word interest. And yes, even the poor in this economy were not to be charged interest. Yeah, but they got, the, they got poor on their own fault. That didn't matter. They still had a legal right. And how are they going to get out of that mess if you keep charging exorbitant interest? That, this relates even to the stealing of life. The stealing of human beings. This idea is, is caught in the area of slavery and human trafficking. Exodus 21 and verse 16 would unpack this just a little bit more. And the reality is that when Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Genesis chapter 37, by the law, of course this is pre-Moses in Genesis, it requires the death penalty. Life for life. Roughly speaking, this is an older statistic now. I don't know that it would be much different. But uh, David Fredericks in his book, Trusted Criminals, White Collar Crime in Contemporary Society. Most of us are not white collar, and so we're saying, yeah. Okay, but he's not talking about the owners right now. He's talking about the employees. One third of employees in the U.S. admit to have stolen from their companies. Two-thirds say that they've benefited by abusing sick leave or falsifying time cards. Maybe there's more awkward silence there. I don't know. How is Christ the fulfillment of this? Luke chapter 23. Jesus on the cross. And Luke's gospel uses a, a more generic word, criminal. Jesus is hung between two criminals. But Matthew's word is robbers. And this is where we get our terminology, the thief on the cross. Luke 23, verse 39, one of the 
criminals or robbers who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns to Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is forgiveness for the thief, for the robber. There is. And Jesus himself took the same penalty as the thief and the robber. But it is the devil himself who is the robber. Jesus' words in John chapter 10 and verse 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus comes not as a thief to squander your life, to take away. He comes to give you abundance of life, to give and to serve and not to take. Verse 16, you should bear no false witness. This is the sanctity of justice. The primary applications here in the court, in commercial life, marketing. Are they really, are they really promoting and telling us what the product does? And much advertising today is really about a story marketing, not necessarily about the quality of the product. They want us to buy into the feel of the story, not necessarily what it is they got. They don't really care what it is that they're selling you. Just buy it. And here's our story that will make you buy it. Well, I digress. It's also bearing false testimony and false accusations about people. Perhaps we might think of it in terms of slander. But even think of Job's supposed friends. They bore false witness against him. They were calling him a sinner when he had not sinned for his suffering. That's false witness, false testimony. When you make presuppositional accusations and judgment calls upon people, this isn't just about the black lie or even the white lie. This is about bearing false testimony in your mind and in your heart about somebody else. Philippians 4.8 says we are to think on whatever is true, honorable, just. The devil is a liar. John chapter 8 and verse 44. He is a liar and the father of lies. But you don't believe me because I tell the truth, Jesus says. Well, the New Testament ethic is much the same. Paul to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Just very bold and blunt. Don't lie. Revelation 28, and verse 8. This is a bit scary. All liars, the verse says, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. All perjurers, all liars, all those who bear false accusations about other people. Hmm. 
the Christological fulfillment. Jesus himself is the faithful witness. Revelation 3.14. These are the words of the Amen. The word Amen, what does that mean? What does Amen mean? So be it verily, truly. Some of our older translations, verily, verily, I say unto you. Newer translations, truly, truly, I say to you. It's the word amen. Amen, amen. So when you say amen to something going on in the service, you're saying, true. It's true. Now you know what you're saying. You thought you were speaking in tongues. Now you know. You got the gift of interpretation. I just... John 18. Jesus before Pilate. He says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says, What's truth? And he goes back to the Jews and says, I find no guilt in him. The truth was standing right before him. Verse 17, no coveting. Word number 10. All the other words appear to be external. We're already realizing they have great internal application and impact. But this one, even more especially, is, is interior, isn't it? It's about what we're to think or not to think. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To covet, to, the word covet actually is a neutral term. It can be used negatively as it is here, but it can be used positively as well, like the desires of a righteous person are good. Or even of God himself. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. This same word. The problem isn't desire itself. The problem is that we desire too little or we desire something that is less worthy of being desired or it is misdirected at something that is someone else's. And to covet is to long over, to incline toward, to lust over and yearn for that specific thing that someone has. I want that knife. Now, the issue is about self-interest, self-absorption, self-satisfaction, and it's an issue of the mind. And the New Testament ethic, Ephesians 5, 5, be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Coveting now brings us back full circle to the top of the words, doesn't it? What do you think about God? And what do you think about stuff? If you think more highly about stuff, you've become an idolater and replaced the first place of God. 
and subsumed between these two are all the others. Indeed, when we fall in one, we're probably falling in multiple of these at the same time or leading into others. Well, we see the New Testament ethic is there. Covetousness is idolatry. The counter virtue to this is contentedness, contentment. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews 13.5 summarizes this as we've already alluded to, God first. Hebrews 13.5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is enough. God is more than plenty. God is the place of your soul's satisfaction. He is your contentment, the fullness of your desire, your longing. Don't allow your longings to be for lesser things. Jesus is again the fulfillment of this. He says, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to accomplish his work. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He fulfills the contentment. Even in his temptations, Luke chapter 4, the, the Satan, the, the tempter, tempts him with, you want all the kingdoms? They can be yours. You need some bread? Turn those stones into bread. And Jesus was satisfied that all the Father was for him and didn't fall into temptation. Well, how do we sum up these things? First, recognize one of these principles is that all the words begin in the order of creation. They're all there. When we ignore the, the centrality of God, we will replace him with the breaking of all these other words. You can't love God and still love others. You can't love others and follow these words unless you love God first. But know this, even as we have seen Jesus as the fulfillment, he kept the law for you. Not only did he die the penalty in your place, but he kept the precept in your place. You need not only his death, but you need his righteousness. His. God's grace has redeemed you. And God's grace empowers you by the blood of the Lamb to keep the will of God and bring him pleasure. 
You who belong to Christ have been born again. You've been regenerated and you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love, the kingdom of light. So stop living in the old way and live in the new. For the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ has written the law of Christ on your heart. It's there. Summed up in one word as we read in Romans 13, love. Now our challenge, our admonition, is to submit to that internal change brought by the Spirit and break those old habits and those old ways of thinking and doing and live in the fullness of God. So, indeed, Father, we, we come and indeed we need your grace, your favor. Would you search our hearts and our minds and conform us to the image of Christ and empower us with a heart's desire to live for you. Amen.